The following program is a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcast Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com to learn more about this and our other weekly storytelling programs and become a patron today to show your support and get instant access to our extensive archive of downloadable ad-free tales of terror. Thank you for listening. And enjoy the show. Disclaimer. Horror Hill is a horror anthology podcast bringing you scary stories from all corners of the internet and beyond. As such, certain stories include content that some listeners might find offensive. In particular, tonight's story includes a number of references to suicide. Listener discretion is advised. Good evening, listeners, and welcome back to Horror Hill. I'm your humble host, Eric Peabody, and in tonight's story, we're going to be exploring a situation that I'm sure many of us can relate to. Being a kid, going over to a new friend's house for the first time, and realizing that their family is weird. The story in question is Confessor to the Dead by Marcus Demanda. In this tale, 11-year-old Teddy has realized that he's one of the only friends that fellow student Zack has. Even though Zack isn't very popular at school, he lives in one of the nicer parts of town and has all of the latest toys. Zack invites Teddy over for a birthday party, and as excited as Teddy is at seeing Zack's house, he's less thrilled about meeting his family. You see... Zack's sister is a moody punk rocker. Zack's mom is strangely strict and prim. And, most importantly, Zack's dad runs the hospital morgue. Sometimes, kids can feel anxious about new situations and meeting new people just because they're kids. But sometimes, that wariness is justified. Also, joining me today is Michelle Kane, voicing several characters in this story. You're listening to the standard edition of this program. If you'd like to help support Horror Hill and also remove these pesky ads, head to ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com and click Patrons in the upper menu to sign up today. You'll get instant access to hundreds of ad-free stories, and we can scale back some of our... Uh, less savory means of generating money for the show. By the way, 
You wouldn't happen to still have all of your organs, would you? Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And now, from author Marcus DeMonda, I give you Confessor to the Dead. Growing up, I was always jealous of Zack. He had all the best stuff. Whenever there was something new everyone simply had to have, he was the first to get it. This included the Atari 400 game system, at least according to him. My other friends at St. Reginald's didn't believe him. There was no way for us to know for sure. None of us had ever visited his house. It was generally agreed that Zack came from a creepy-as-hell family. His sister, Hannah, wore a leather jacket and dyed her hair strange colors, which was a new thing at the time. No one ever saw his mother except on Sundays and at the grocery store. His father was a deacon, but no one knew what he did in that capacity. For a living, he ran the hospital morgue, I never met him, this confessor to the dead, this deacon death, but I saw him all the time at church. It was December 1979. Zach told us about the game system during lunch. There was no cafeteria at St. Reggie's, so students had lunch out on the courts or in the classroom, and there was ice on the blacktop today. Got the 400 yesterday, he said, staring down at his desktop tentative and quiet. Bullshit, John Eric muttered, careful to float his voice under the estimated range of teacher pickup. I'm serious, Zack said, as my other friends conducted their lunch trades without him. Dad said it counted both for Christmas and my birthday. Then, after a pause, which is tomorrow? He'd be turning 12, which made him a few months older than me. I could see cards sticking out of the side of his binder. Invitations. If I was right, then lunch would have been the time to hand them out. I wondered why he hadn't done so. We were friends, but we weren't close. I didn't know that Zack had any close friends. 
I believed him about the 400, though. Jealous as I was, I felt a little sorry for him. I have some pretzels, I said, holding them up. What you got? Later, when no one was looking, he passed me one of the cards. I could tell he wanted this secret, so I didn't make a thing about it. I'd been right. It was an invitation to a birthday party and sleepover tomorrow after school. I didn't think my parents would say yes with only tonight to think about it, but I thanked him and told him I'd ask. I nodded to his binder where the other cards were still visible. What about the rest? I asked. No one else was paying attention. Screw them, he said, tucking the pack of rubber-banded invitations back out of sight. Just you, man. After school, my mom called his mom. She waved me out of the room, so I have no idea what they said, but ten minutes of conversation with Mrs. Cooper resulted in permission given, and the next thing I knew, I was told to get in the car. Couldn't really go to a kid's birthday without getting him a present. Zack and I rode the same bus, but I lived on Garrison Road and he lived in Rappahannock Heights. The Heights is a gated community. I was always picked up before him and dropped off after. Those of us in the Garrison gang got a good look at how the rich kids lived on the way to and from school every day. Must be nice, I said, sharing a seat with him that Friday afternoon, listening to the bus rumble past a life I would never have. What? he asked. Living here, I said. You know... Big fancy house, cool cars everywhere, stuff like that. My dad was a mechanic, so I knew about cars. He shrugged. I guess, he said. And the 400, I said. All to yourself. That's got to be crazy cool. Maybe, he said. I haven't played it yet. This stumped me, but then he went on. Dad doesn't play, and I don't want to play it with my mom or my sister. His voice was all logic and reason, not sad or lonely in any way. What's the point? The point was fun, I wanted to say. I had the 2600 at home and I could lose half an afternoon in front of adventure or half the night before bedtime playing duck hunt with my dad. I shook my head at him, then smiled. Well, Zach, I said, we're going to break that bad boy in tonight, hardcore. I imagined us sitting on beanbag cushions next to loaded snack tables in a palatial living room, fighting sleep until three in the morning at least, looking up, bug-eyed at a TV screen that would surely span the entire wall. Good, he said. We'll have the whole basement to ourselves. Supposed to crash before 10.30, though. 10.30? Why? I don't want to be up when the ghosts come out, he said, quite simply. Do you? I studied his face, looking for the joke in his eyes. I didn't find it. But then he smirked and I laughed at him. Ghosts in the basement? That would be the best thing ever! The only vehicle in the driveway was Mrs. Cooper's town car. I found myself relieved Mr. Cooper wasn't home. And there was Mrs. Cooper herself, awaiting us on the front porch like we were kindergartners. Zack and I clambered off, and she was good enough to wait for the bus to drive on before giving her son the obligatory hug. Happy birthday, Zachariah, she said. 
Zack looked fit to die of embarrassment. I offered up an expression of deepest empathy. What could a guy do? Mothers. Then she turned to me. Hello, Theodore. Thank you for coming. I didn't dare tell her I went by Teddy. Instead, I mustered up my standard parent greeting for sleepovers and delivered it, winsome and casual as I could. Thanks for having me. I promise not to break anything. Sounds like you have a history, she said with a wink. Come on in. Let's give you the tour. The house was everything I had imagined, especially the living room, which could have easily accommodated our entire class. Not only was there a widescreen television, but also a very cool grandfather clock and a long mahogany turntable stereo system. The turntable was three feet high and six wide, with A-track capability and speakers big enough to blast all three floors of the house. Turned out Mrs. Cooper was a big fan of Gospel Elvis, and she wasted no time subjecting us to his greatest godly hits. In the kitchen, we found Hannah hunched over a science textbook and a scattering of note cards. She had dark circles under her eyes and a paleness of complexion that made her look positively ill. Her hair hung in lank ribbons. She was in her leather jacket, even indoors with a heater blaring. Her forehead beaded with sweat. Hannah? Mrs. Cooper said. We have company tonight. This is Theodore, Zachariah's classmate, and... The pause was meaningful, as if she were about to deliver news of historic importance. Friend. Zack, for his part, looked as eager to be away as I felt. Hannah looked up, straight ahead, and not at us. I know who he is, she said. Hi, Teddy. Welcome to the house. Good for you, Zack. Mrs. Cooper put her hands on her hips. If that's the best you can do for your only brother on his birthday? But Hannah finished for her, mocking her. Then you can take your work up to your bedroom and finish it there, young lady. Which she did, without any further encouragement. In ten brisk seconds, she'd gathered up her school stuff and departed. Passing us, she fairly hissed, Good thing it's just one, Mom. And to Teddy, Happy birthday. I was tempted to mutter an apology, feeling myself the source of trouble in their home. I don't think I've ever felt so unwelcome in my life, but I kept quiet, even after a door slammed shut upstairs. Instead, Mrs. Cooper did the apologizing. Forgive me, Theodore, she said, placing her hand on the back of my neck and giving me a little squeeze. Forgive Hannah, she's going through a phase, a very difficult phase. After that, the three of us went downstairs to unload my things and set up in the basement. It seemed Zach hadn't been joking about that much after all. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. 
Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot There was a large fold-out sofa for a bed intended for me, which I had to admit was more than a little cool, but I didn't see anything set out for Zach. I had no desire to share a bed with him. I let it go for the moment, though, and took in the rest of the place. It was absolutely gigantic, with actual pillars propping it up. Retractable partitions set off odd corners for storage, but other than that, it was all one place. If only one or two more kids had been invited, we could have played flashlight tag down there. There was a television, too, although nothing quite as impressive as the one in the living room. Just your typical color zenith on a TV table. But the 400 was already hooked up to it, and among the games Zach had been given for his birthday, I could see some of my favorites from the out-of-time arcade. Supper in two hours, Mrs. Cooper said, nodding at the TV. You're free to blow up as much of the universe as you can until then. Will Dad be home in time for dinner? Zack asked. No, honey. Mrs. Cooper replied, her voice rich with regret. It's one of his late nights. I'm sorry. Couldn't be helped. But judging by the slight smile on the corner of Zack's lips, I guessed he didn't mind. Can we just have it down here, then? I'm sure Hannah wouldn't mind. Mrs. Cooper stood there considering it. No, I suppose she won't, she finally said. Well, it's just sausage and pepper sandwiches anyway. Cake, later. We wasted no time after she left. We cranked the volume on the TV as far as it would go. Even through the closed door and down the stairs, we still had to compete with the voice of Elvis Presley. My sister's going through a phase, Zack breathed, taking his turn at the controls of asteroids, laying down some serious emphasis on the last word. A phase, Teddy, you know. Phase of being a dumb bitch, if you ask me. That got me cackling. God, he prayed aloud, looking up away from the TV, hitting the fire button and twiddling the joystick in random directions. Freeze me in time right now. Let me be twelve forever. If that's what being a teenager is like, then save me, God. Unattended, his ship got pulverized by an asteroid right away. He was having fun, but he didn't seem to care about getting very far in the games we played, nor about his score. I didn't understand that about him, but whatever. People could be weird. Anyway, that made it my turn. Our plates lay next to us, nothing but crumbs on them. Crumpled soda cans littered the rug we'd camped out on. It was a good thing we were right by the bathroom. Between us, we'd killed a six-pack of Mr. Pibb. And back then, there was no such thing as a pause feature in video games. It was a hand-off and pee relay, and in spite of Zack's on-screen recklessness, we were getting pretty good at it. My present to him had hardly seen any action at all. 
The handheld plastic walkie-talkies that had been on sale were a little dated at the time. Once, during a reluctant break from the 400, we'd separated to opposite ends of the basement to try them out, saying things like, Breaker, breaker, and what's your 20? Because we'd both seen Smokey and the Bandit. But they just could not compete with Asteroids, Centipede, Defender, or Missile Command. On this system, they were near-perfect clones of the stand-up arcade versions, but you didn't have to put in a quarter to play. It was joyous, kind of like stealing without actually doing anything wrong. At 9.45, we heard the door back to the upstairs open. Come on up, boys, Mrs. Cooper called. Jammy's on. Time for prayers and a little red velvet. All right, so he hadn't been kidding about the bedtime either. Disconcerting as that was, worse yet was the command, Jammy's on. Mine consisted of a complete set, perfect for wandering around in the middle of the night without having one's modesty inadvertently compromised, and they weren't footy pajamas either, thank you very much, but I hadn't counted on walking around on the middle floor of a strange house in them. I figured it would be just me and Zack, hanging out casually in the basement until sleep won the night. But I told myself to be big about it, to not overthink it. Going up the stairs, I noticed Zack had brought one of his walkie-talkies with him. I was surprised to find Hannah again in the kitchen when Zack and I emerged from the basement. She was now in a nightgown instead of her jacket. Whatever she may have felt, this was more than a little embarrassing for me. I didn't have sisters, apart from the kind that wore white and black and taught math and geography at St. Reggie's. Nevertheless, there we were, the four of us, gathered two on either side of the kitchen table, staring down a hearty heap of red velvet cake with white icing topped with twelve candles. Who wanted freaking red velvet over chocolate anyway? That was the kind of cake my grandmother liked. Mrs. Cooper and Hannah lit the candles together, working from the middle toward the outside with wooden matches instead of lighters. It was impossible not to notice Hannah's slightly sunnier disposition throughout the ritual, and I wondered what had brought it on. With the candles freshly lit, face beaming behind small points of flame, Mrs. Cooper directed us in singing Zack Happy Birthday. Then, her voice dripping with anticipation, she said, And what are the house rules? Zack rolled his eyes. That's Dad's question, Mom, and you usually say the first one. Your father is not here tonight, and we have company. They need to be understood. Her gaze fixed on him, kind but stern. I'll start, same as always. The first house rule is always say your prayers before dinner and bed. Hannah tossed her hair over her shoulder and winked at me. Second is, never watch God bring in a new day. Was that code for stick to your bedtime? And the third, Zack said, resigned. Finish your cake. I almost laughed at him. He'd been cracking me up all night, and this seemed like just one more of his smart-ass comments. Anyway, how could that be a house rule? It wasn't like they had cake every night. But Mrs. Cooper didn't correct him. Instead, her smile benevolent and approving, she said, Hands. We clasped hands. We closed our eyes. I didn't peek. 
Zack began it. Watch, dear Lord, with those who wake tonight, and give your angels charge over those who sleep. Guard us against all evil. Hannah followed him, her voice practically a whisper. Keep silent the night, and bless us with peace in our house. Be with our Father on earth. Bless his holy work, and keep him safe. And then Mrs. Cooper. Bless the dying, O Lord Jesus Christ, that they may come to you in good time. Rest your weary ones for your love's sake. Guide the wakeful dead to their righteous contrition. Save us all from the fires of hell. Forgive us our sins, both the living and the dead. Lead all souls to heaven in your infinite mercy. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. And at the last, all of us together, Amen. When I opened my hands and let go, I found myself looking straight down at the table, trying to process what they had been praying for. I blinked, considering it for long seconds, seeing only a tiny cake fork and the china plate until, abruptly, Mrs. Cooper slid a sizable wedge of crimson cake onto it. It was so moist and fresh, the velvet seemed to bleed. But it smelled good, like a mountain of sugar should. Using the dainty little fork felt rich and sophisticated to a middle-class kid like me. I set to it and quickly forgot that I preferred chocolate to red velvet. Go slow, Hannah advised me, eyebrows raised. Don't want to get sick, do you? Mrs. Cooper didn't have any of it. Most of the cake was left unserved. Maybe she was waiting to have hers with her husband. When Zack yawned, long and expansively, his plate empty, Mrs. Cooper came to him, took him by the arm, and led him to his feet. That's it, birthday boy. Up you get. Sleepy time for my new twelve-year-old. He didn't fight her. I felt a surge of panic when she began to lead him toward the upstairs, Elvis singing How Great Thou Art in the background. My hand clutched the little fork. Hannah took it and led it back down to the plate. Wait, she whispered. It'll be all right. I had to sleep downstairs in the basement alone? Mrs. Cooper looked over her shoulder and said, Little boys can get excitable in the night. Wouldn't want you two doing anything you'd have to confess in the morning. She disappeared upstairs with her weak and unspeaking son. Surprisingly, I felt a bit sleepy myself. Hannah's voice never rose above a breath. It's drugged, Teddy. Stay with me for a few minutes, okay? My eyes wandered to her plate, half empty like mine. Her feet were unsteady as she swept my plate away and plucked the fork from my hand. She staggered to the sink, jammed our cake into the disposal while Elvis crooned in the background. She ran water. For a hot second, she ran the disposal. It's not good for you, she said. You're too small. It's too dangerous. You shouldn't be here. From upstairs... Make sure he finishes, Hannah. He's done. She shouted back, her voice struggling over the music. Never seen a kid finish like that. I'm taking him down now. She helped me up, just as her mother had done with Zack. 
My brain was muddy. Fear prickled like ants at my feet. She led me to the door. She opened it and flicked on the lights. You want to be asleep by 11, Teddy. Can you make it down on your own? The record reached the end of its side. Silence bloomed. I took the railing. I started down. I returned alone to the basement. Make it until morning, she said. It'll be over when you wake up. Once I was back at floor level, Hannah pointed to the bathroom. Throw it up, she said. Then she slapped the lights back off. I heard a key go into the door and softly lock. Mrs. Cooper drugged me. My mind raced. She freaking drugged me. I could feel it, the gentle but inexorable swell toward unconsciousness. Half a slice of cake churned in my stomach. So much of that cake was still upstairs. Would it have been enough to put down every kid Zack had written invitations to? I could still walk. I could think. By the light of the television, I could make out the bathroom. I lurched for it, head spinning, guts roiling. It wasn't hard to get sick. It was more of a challenge to hold it in as I turned on the light and the ceiling fan, bending over the toilet. I heaved and heaved until I was only dry-retching. I knelt there for minutes after I flushed it down, praying I'd be able to sleep, that I could fast-forward this night like a cassette tape and hurry in the new day so I could go home. I felt a little better after that. My legs were wobbly when I stood, but I figured that was mostly from the puking. I padded back toward the black and white static of the television and the fold-out sofa bed. My world resolved into dim, soft focus. I stared into the TV light for I don't know how long, waiting for myself to return to normal. I could hear nothing from upstairs. They'd all gone to sleep, I guessed, including Mrs. Cooper. I couldn't even hear Elvis. Between the TV and the sofa bed, lying on the floor, was the other walkie-talkie. Had Zack taken his upstairs? I couldn't remember, but I sat down and picked it up. I held down the button. Breaker, breaker, one nine, I said. Zack, it's Teddy. Can you hear me? Are you up? When nobody answered, I started to cry. Couldn't help myself. I wanted to throw the stupid toy, break it. But then, from the other end, faintly and tired, What's your twenty? My twenty is your big-ass basement, Zack! I snapped, wiping my nose with my hands. And I'm all alone, I thought, but did not add. Zack again, answering, fading. It'll... Be okay. A dull bang abruptly echoed from the interior of the house. Some kind of adjustment in the heating system. That's what my dad would say. Something in the air ducts. But there were moans after. And words, spoken in a chorus of hisses and whispers, hundreds strong. Be gone, child. The line has moved. Go 
to whatever awaits you. We don't have room for you anymore. And something like a fading Doppler effect scream. Like hell it will, I said, smearing away fresh tears. I wanted to yell for help, but I held it in. I didn't want to summon Mrs. Cooper. I'm going to tell on you, I said. On all of you. My parents will call the cops. Your mom will go to jail. No, you won't remember enough to do that. Oh, yes, I will. I promised him. I'd broken the house rule. I hadn't eaten all of the cake. Not even half of it. Go to sleep, Teddy. I'll see you in the morning. No, Zack, I said, half commanding, half begging. Get me out of here. I want to use the phone. From the other end, only breathing, as though he had fallen asleep, still holding the button. Several times I called his name, sitting there, rocking back and forth, crying, sobbing like a baby. Nothing. I crawled over to the sofa bed, which was already pulled out. The house banged again, forcing a half-strangled yelp of terror from me. I crawled under the covers, still clutching the walkie-talkie, wrapping the pillow over my ears. Upstairs, the old grandfather clock pealed eleven times. I couldn't shut out the noise. And when it was done, my walkie-talkie clicked twice, as if Zack or someone was pushing the button on the other end. Again, I was about to throw the thing, but then... You're still awake, aren't you? Through the distortion, I recognized Hannah's voice. I pressed the button. Why did you... did you lock me down here? Moments passed. I'd almost given up on her when she answered. I'm sorry, she said. I did it to protect you, Teddy. From upstairs, I could hear someone walking around. The sound was soft, as if whoever it was didn't have on any shoes. It wasn't Hannah, though. She was in Teddy's room, or she had taken the little radio into her own room. Hannah said, I didn't do it to keep you in. I did it to keep them out. Who? I started, feeling sweat trickle into my eyes along with the tears, then restarted. What are you talking about? The ghosts, she said. It's father's fault, you know. Don't blame mother. She's praying for you right now, even with her own children to think about. I can hear her. She's so grateful to you. It was the best birthday Zach ever had. I didn't dare leave the bed. The footsteps sounded like they were just outside the door. Hannah was whispering now, as if she could hear the footsteps as well. Father talks to them sometimes. The dead. He has a job at the church. A secret job. A very important job. It didn't sound like a ghost. It sounded like a person. Wandering. Pacing. Just one. Walking all over the place. With real feet. 
and the sarcastic, bitter way that Hannah had said the word important conjured more questions than it dispelled. I didn't want to talk. I wanted to be asleep. But Hannah kept talking, and I didn't turn off the walkie-talkie. She was my guardian. The walkie-talkie was my lifeline. Some of us don't go to heaven or hell when we die. Some of us have unresolved sins still unconfessed. The footsteps stopped. Hannah whispered, He takes their confessions. He's the only one around here who can do it. He leads them from this middle hell, from purgatory, to wherever they're going in the end. Upstairs, the front door to the house opened with an echoing click. One of them followed him home, she said. One body, a thousand ghosts, and they won't leave. Then the door shut with an echoing thud. But they'll go after tonight, she said. Goodbye, Teddy. Go to sleep if you can. I didn't feel high anymore. I lay on my back, listening. The police would later suggest that I imagined everything that took place on the entry-level floor of the Cooper house. My mind was in an altered state, they'd remind me. I was terrified. And, as my parents would add, I was a very imaginative boy. Heavy shoes clomped into the house, totally different from the footsteps that had been pacing upstairs minutes ago. They softened, stepped onto the carpet of the living room. Again, Elvis Presley filled the house, this time singing Amazing Grace. Into the kitchen. A glass set on the formica, ice cubes rattling. I heard him gulp the drink down and sigh before setting the glass in the sink. I saw it, too, somehow. Perfectly clear, never leaving the bed. Deacon Death in a black overcoat with a tail still wearing his hat and gloves. I saw him from the back, as though I were watching through the eyes of another. He remained at the sink until the song finished and the needle reached the inner label of the vinyl, scratching and skipping, playing nothing. The deacon never moved, but someone must have grown annoyed at the noise because I heard the needle lifted and reset, followed by the muffled electronic foomph of the speakers being shut off. A single ghost spoke, just one among the chorus of hisses and whispers that had moaned and screamed earlier. The ghost was calm now. She sounded satisfied, maybe even happy. You're just in time, she said. We must speak it every night, this very hour. This isn't a good night for it, Mr. Cooper said, still without turning. It's my son's birthday. He has company. There's sleep. The ghost answered as though through the very walls from everywhere. That is not our concern. We're finished with you after tonight, one way or the other. Do you understand? I have your word on that. We've used up this place already. There's nothing left for us here anymore. We'll be gone very soon, the more so if you release us. 
You aren't the one I talked to last night. No, Tucker Brownstone is no longer with us. I am in command of the host now. Quickly, Mr. Cooper, time is short. Deacon Death turned. I recognized him, but just barely. He'd become suddenly old. His features sagged as though his face might simply fall off at any second. (sighs) Let's go then, he said, leading this phantom back through the hall and into the dining room. At the table, he sat himself in front of a tall oval mirror. Through it, I could see the person, or thing, to whom he was speaking. Across the hall, in the family room, the grandfather clock pealed again. Once. Twice. Three times. The ghost was only a girl, no older than Hannah. Her hair was done up in curls and ribbons. She wore a black pullover robe. Her eyes were protuberant and bloody. Her front teeth were jagged, broken, and black. Her mouth dribbled inky smoke. Mr. Cooper produced a tape recorder from an overcoat pocket. He set it between them even as the clock pealed a seventh time and an eighth. You don't mind? he asked. If this works, she said, smoke seeping through her bared teeth. We couldn't care less. He pushed the record button. She said, I was Myra Corin Blankenship. My father was killed in a train robbery. My family was ruined. In April 1895, when I was 14, I killed myself with his own gun, and I repent. As the clock finished, Mr. Cooper made the sign of the cross and responded, God, the Father of mercies, through the death and resurrection of his Son, has reconciled the world to himself and sent the Holy Spirit among us for the forgiveness of sins. Through the ministry of the church, may God give you pardon and peace, and I absolve you from your sins in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. I saw her body change. Quickly, bones shifting, frame growing, shoulders broadening. I could hear her ripple away to nothing. But then, just as quickly, I was back in the basement. I was in bed. Just like that, I had been released from the vision. But I could still hear the voice of the ghost that rose up in her place. Again, it was like a faint tremble in the walls, an inescapable litany of penance. This time, the voice was male. I was Jonathan Mark Flynn. I was caught in the act of fornication with one of my own sex, and I was imprisoned. In January 1898, when I was 17, I stabbed myself in the femoral with a quarry pick, and I repent. And again, for Mr. Cooper, the absolution prayer. I don't know what possessed me to ease myself out of the bed just then, to pad as quietly as I could back toward the staircase, closer to the ritual, even as the third penitent surfaced, and a fourth. Marshall Amory had been only twelve when he had done it in 1900, but Amanda Forsyth had been seventeen, like Jonathan had been, 
when she killed herself in 1905. Thankfully, the stairs did not creak as I ascended, drawing closer. I told myself I was crazy, absolutely nuts, crawling on all fours up and up towards this madness. What was I thinking? And even if it did make sense in some kind of backward, messed up way, the door was locked. I stopped at the top and pressed my ear to it. I think, although it's impossible to be sure, that it was the seventh ghost who spoke at that moment. Its voice was, at first, both long-suffering and impatient. I was Alistair Charles Hutchinson. I was lonely. I loved a girl, but that love was not returned. In June 1912, when I was 15, I hanged myself, and I... I... You know what? Fuck this. This isn't working. We're not going anywhere. The others are still here. I can smell them. Like old summer shit in the rain. I heard Mr. Cooper clear his throat, sounding nervous, but he didn't answer to that. I don't repent anything I did, Alistair went on. I didn't ask for this. You're not like the others, Mr. Cooper eventually managed. You and this host. I don't think you've been consigned to the middle hell. I don't know where you are. I don't know what you are. I don't know what to do with you. Alistair laughed, a long, slow chuckle of resignation. That's too bad, he seethed. Because the line has moved again this very night. Your daughter moved it. What? Confusion. Dread. Terror. What do you mean? Alistair continued. And I know what to do with you, Mr. Cooper. She named you. You're her unsettled account. There was a sudden, terrible tumult of noise. Chairs' legs scraping the floor. Wood splintering. A tumbling and a pummeling. A tearing. Glass shattering. Through it, neither Mr. Cooper nor Alistair Hutchinson said a word. And after... There was only silence. Then, sniffling, an inhalation taken through an open mouth, a thought transmitted in Alistair's voice directly into my own brain, clear and calm, as though it had been spoken to me. You, the sleepover. Teddy, is it? You've been eavesdropping. I gasped, let out a small scream. I got to my feet and grabbed the railing, taking the steps back down three at a time. You've been bad, Teddy. I heard the doorknob rattle, then simply snap and drop to the floor as though it had been pushed or punched through. The door crashed inward, half off its hinges. The thing made a scuttling noise as it pursued me, as though it were going down the stairs on all fours like an animal. I was still a couple of steps from the bottom. I thought I had been fast. 
It got me with one hand by the ankle. I tumbled forward, my hands barely saving me from what would have been a nose-crushing faceplant against the concrete floor of the basement. Still facing away from him, not daring to look behind, I heard the thing stand and turn, never letting go of me. It dragged me, my fingernails clutching and scratching a concrete, back toward the stairs. The thing spoke aloud again. Bad boys are punished, Teddy. Let me go! I screamed. Please, I'm sorry! Back up the stairs we went. Alistair ignored me the whole way, even as I begged him and bargained with him and made promises to be good. I told him I didn't even want to be here. We were just supposed to play video games. No one had told me I was going to be locked in the basement. I was scared, I told him. And I was so, so sorry. He didn't let go until we had made it to the middle floor. Ahead of me, I could see the kitchen. At my back was the hall and the front door. On either side were the living room and the dining room. Alistair stopped. He dropped my foot. I scrambled to my butt, then to my knees, but I didn't dare run. I could see him now, with my own eyes, his back to me. He was wearing the same black robe that Myra Blankenship had worn. He was just a kid, with a mop of black, curly, unkempt hair, holding his head on both sides of the ears. His voice was straining, fighting. Not yet, Mary Beth. Just a little bit longer. Which made no sense at all. When he turned, his face contorted to a hateful glare. I wondered where his injury was. If he had killed himself by hanging, I expected to see bruise marks. Silly thoughts, stupid, but they bloomed unbidden to my brain like a sickness. And I knew that he had perceived them when his neck stretched half a foot, like a fucking turtle, and his face drew closer to mine, staring, enraged. I shrieked. He grabbed me by the collar of my pajama top, brought me to my feet, marched me toward the dining room, where I could not help but see that the tall, oval mirror had been brought down over Deacon Death, who lay on the floor in a pool of spreading blood. There was a deep gash in his neck and a jagged sliver of mirror glass jutting from it. Blood pumped from the wound in streams. Mr. Cooper's eyes were wide, blinking. He was alive. And there, Alistair seemed to surrender. He released me again, walked serenely to the broken table, and turned up a chair from where it lay sideways on the floor. He sat himself down. He reached over, turned off the tape recorder. His finger hovered over the eject button, hesitated, withdrew. I didn't watch him change. I heard it happen, but my eyes fixed back on Mr. Cooper. I watched as the blood stopped flowing, his eyes unfocused. I saw my friend's father die, and I did nothing. 
I was Mary Beth Dunlap, said a voice similar to Hannah's but younger. I was sick and couldn't walk. In September 1912, when I was 12, I drank the rat poison the doctors left out for me, and I repent. Upstairs, I could hear Mrs. Cooper. She was praying, just as Hannah had said. She was saying the Lord's Prayer over and over again. Run, I thought. Leave this house now. Never mind your stuff. Never mind the cold. Just go. Someone will find you. Instead, I bounded upstairs. I had to find Zach's room. Hannah's, too. I had to get them out of here. Maybe Hannah could drive. At the end of the upstairs hall, the door to the master bedroom was open, and there I saw Mrs. Cooper on her knees, head bowed before the foot of her bed. Over the head of the bed hung a massive, full-color crucifix that left few details of the horrors of Christ's crucifixion to the imagination. Our Father, who art in heaven, she prayed, Hallowed be thy name. I found Zach's room unlocked. Inside, he was completely, obviously asleep. No matter how many times I shook him, he didn't stir. Downstairs, yet another ghost was recounting his suicide and making his repentance. From Mrs. Cooper, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Hannah's door was locked. I banged on the door, yelled at it, screamed Hannah's name. But I was eleven and wasn't much good at kicking down doors. The phone, I thought. The kitchen. The voice of Mrs. Cooper receded as I ran back down the stairs for it. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. When I got there... Perhaps ten of the thousand ghosts had made their repentance. I caught a glimpse of a single transformation, of a body within that black robe changing shape, the hue of its skin darkening, the tone and pitch of its voice altering, going male to female again. How long would it take to finish them all? And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. But the first thing my eyes settled upon as I emerged into the kitchen was not the phone. It was the countertop. The red velvet cake was gone. All of it. I made the call. Not to the police. Not for an ambulance. I called home. Mom picked up. I didn't say much, but I told her what I was going to do. I ran out of the house, straight out into the cold, wearing only my pajamas. I ran out on the Coopers, out on my friend. I left him there, helpless and asleep, at the mercy of the thousand ghosts. And that sin, even after having it absolved in confession and later apologizing to Zack himself, still tortures my dreams. I was picked up in no time. A night shift worker at the local hospital caught me on her way home, and she intercepted my mother's car even as she was driving me back to my own house. I'm told it was a couple hours before the police made it to the Cooper estate. 
I'll never know if the ghosts were still there when the cops arrived. The official story makes no mention of them. I reported everything. It needn't be said that no one believed a word of it. I was drugged. I was the survivor of a horrible crime, witness to unspeakable events no child should ever see. My mind had rebelled, fabricated its own version of the events, turned it into a fantasy to hide what really happened. But nothing can make me doubt the evidence of my own memory. It was real. It happened. I think now that Hannah had finished the cake and overdosed on her mother's drugs before ever picking up that walkie-talkie, she was already in the host at that time, allowed out by the ghost of Myra Blankenship to urge me toward sleep and to explain herself. Mrs. Cooper was arrested and eventually institutionalized. Zack went into foster care. I've seen him once or twice. As for me, I've never been bothered by the ghosts since that night, unless it is in the darkened wilderness of my sleep. I take pills for that. I see a therapist. Sometimes it helps. I'm a regular at church, too. I keep up with confession. I go every Sunday. I work hard to keep my slate clean, to keep my account settled. Honestly, can you blame me? You've been listening to Confessor to the Dead by Marcus DeManda. Marcus DeManda is a writer, teacher, and world's best uncle. He is the gatekeeper to your nightmares and dreams, weaver of tales fantastic and unimaginable, or some stuff like that. You can find more of his stories peppered throughout the Chilling Tales for Dark Nights network, as well as at Velux Books www.veloxbooks.com And that, listeners, concludes our episode this evening. I'd like to express my thanks to Marcus DeManda and Velux Books for providing tonight's story, and to Michelle Kane for her wonderful voice acting. And, of course, thanks to you, listeners, for joining me. Be sure to tune in next week for a fun little double feature exploring the thrills and chills of the medical system. Until then, friends, stay spooky. You've been listening to the Horror Hill Podcast, a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights. Tonight's episode was hosted and narrated by yours truly, Eric Peabody. Original music provided by Eric Peabody and Nikki McSorley. Finalization by Eric Peabody and Craig Groshek. Got a terrifying tale of your own that you'd like performed? Email it to us at natalie at chillingtalesfordarknights.com to have your work considered for future production. Seeing as how we're all living in a technological nightmare of our own devising, I'll ask you to follow Chilling Tales for Dark Nights on social media and upvote, subscribe, and hit the bell notification icon if you're listening to this on YouTube. 
Not only will you have appeased the dark gods of cyberspace, but you'll be kept in the loop as we prepare more terrifying content. If you'd like access to uninterrupted horror, free of ads and these annoying bookend segments, might I recommend becoming a patron? You'll get access to hundreds of episodes of this show, as well as everything from the other programs in the Chilling Tales for Dark Nights cabal. That means all of Otis Jiry's scary stories told in the dark, Drew Blood's dark tales, Paul J. McSorley's Fear from the Heartland, and more. It's a veritable smorgasbord of horrific delights. As for me personally, I'm on most social media as Viking Guitar or Viking Guitar Productions. I'm always on the lookout for new stories to narrate and new music projects to mix or master. If that's of interest to you, feel free to reach out and we can talk turkey. Also, I will be back next week with more terrifying tales to keep you up all night. If darkness is what you're after, listener, your search is over. Yet, let it be known, you haven't found the darkness. The darkness has found you. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.